pronounce your name for me your last <laughs> I was afraid I was going to butcher that <laughs> okay there's no way you can uh, butcher it because I don't care okay. how you pronounce it is it Day Jaeger or actually no the, the okay. real pronunciation which I don't use is Diacher okay Diacher Dutch name and okay. it's got a guttural G I was born in South Africa okay so, I would have definitely butchered that one then no 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 the, the pronunciation that we use is Diacher it's a very silent J. De Yager. It's a uh, it's a French pronunciation which fits in with the distance distant ancestry of ours. Okay, well that makes that makes sense. I know it's um, easier. my my pronunciation was coming from Jagermeister, so I don't know if you take that as a a good thing or a bad thing. <laughs> I've been called. I've been called everything. Under the I was like, I wonder if it's pronounced Jaeger, like Jaegermeister. Nope. <laughs> so, nope. Okay. Because I didn't ask you that when we had talked before. So I was like, okay, well, I'll just let him pronounce that for me. So, yeah. okay. So um, you, when we talked before, you were telling me that you have been a professional speaker for uh, 35 years. So that is quite an accomplishment. Um, would you like to tell us kind of a little bit about your background in that? My background is mostly mathematics. I went through okay. high school, focused on mathematics, went to university, hoping to become a teacher in mathematics, uh, high school level. And then the teaching market dried up in Ontario. So I got into computers. I went to IBM. I figured they knew something about computers. And I used to go to a lot of conferences. And I'm one of those people that if you give me a sheet of evaluations, you know, you know give me your feedback, I do that. And I used to turn over the page and noticed it was blank and fill that out. And after about three or four years of this, the, con- the organizers came up to me and they said, well, you know, you have so much to say. Why don't you give a talk? Now, this conference was 2,100 people every year. They used to run seven concurrent sessions. And that meant your market share of the audience is about 300 people. So they asked me to give a talk. Uh, I chose problem solving because that was one of the things I was really good at. And I gave a talk. I'd never spoken before. And I went into a daze. The muse took over. And when I looked up, I'd I'd been, I'm done. I'm finished. And I got a standing ovation. And there were 600 people in the room. And that led to an article, which led to more speaking engagements, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I fell into the business. I wasn't a plan, but I've enjoyed it for the 35 years. That's, that's, wow. That's, I I have publicly spoken um, a few times and not, I've never gone into the trance. I don't know that that was necessarily my big calling, but um, I, I got into it just because I had things that I felt that people needed to hear. And it's definitely not been a, I guess, God-given talent. It's been a learning process, but I've, I've enjoyed it for the short amount of time that I've been doing it. Now you were telling uh, me that you grew up in South Africa and that um, I believe you said you also had lived in Canada at one point. How long have you been in the U S well, I've never been in the U S oh, I've okay. traveled there. Okay. I was born in South Africa. I was raised in Ireland and I live in Canada since about okay, 1971. So you lived in, 
okay, you know what? I, whenever you were telling me you were on Eastern Standard Time, I was assuming you're on the East Coast somewhere. Well, so, I am. Okay. <laughs> well, you're on the East Coast of Canada. So, right. <laughs> okay. So you live in Canada now. So what what part of Canada are you are you from? I I live close to Toronto. We live in a okay. small place, small place, half a million people. Yeah. Uh, called Brampton, just northwest Brampton. of the city. Just it's near the airport, which okay. is my commute. Okay. Okay. I've not been to that that part of Canada. I do like Canada though. Mm-hmm. Which obviously there's um, a ban on travel right now, so I won't be going anytime soon. But <laughs> I do enjoy Canada. You were telling me when we did kind of our pre-interview that you like to push the envelope on how we think as people. And I kind of wanted to dive into that just a tiny bit on what kind of you mean by that. And we had talked about change and how people react to change. And I thought that was a a very good topic, especially seeing as how today, um, which is March 25th, 2020, the world is in a pandemic state. And a lot of people are unsure about, you know, how they should react. Um, what the future looks like, and we all have been pushed into change. So I thought that would be a a great time for us to kind of dive into that a little bit. When I speak, the number one comment made in the evaluations is that he's a provocative speaker. And I latched on to the Socratic method of teaching a long, long time ago. And in that method, you're always asking questions. That's all you do is you ask questions to lead the person to their own revelations. And people find that a provocative way to do it because I'm always putting them on the hot seat. Give me an example from the change stuff. I will ask an audience to raise their hand if the next statement I make is a true statement. And they nod their heads and say, okay, we get that. And then I make the following statement. People resist change. Now, even your listeners right now are nodding their heads saying, yeah, that's right. And then I point out, say, okay, I won't disagree with you. I mean, it's your belief system. So if you believe that people resist change, well and good. But I'm going to ask you a few questions. And then I ask a series of questions that go something like this. Did you decide to get married? Did you decide to bring kids into the world? Did you decide to move from one job to another, not because you were laid off or fired, because you got bored in the one you were in and you wanted more excitement? And I'll go down a list of those questions. And then I ask, okay, how many of you answered yes to 90% of the questions I just asked? And all the hands will go up. And then I say, okay, now you need to compare your original answer, people resist change, to your life where you embrace change all the time and you embrace big changes. You know, getting a new payroll system in or learning how to do a podcast or learning how to use a new application is a trivial exercise. It's a trivial change compared to getting married or then the biggie, having kids. Oh, yeah. You know, getting married is simple, you know, relatively simple. But when you get kids, your entire world turns on its axis and it looks different. It feels different. You have different responsibilities. And you did that to yourself and you did it willingly for the most part. And that juxtaposition of we believe that people resist change and then the reality of their own lives leads into a really interesting discussion because the conflict is with them, not me. I didn't tell them anything. All I did was ask them questions. And people like that type of approach. They find it edgy. 
because I highlight things that haven't been highlighted before. That makes sense. And I think that a lot of times if we're forced to look within ourselves for a lot of things that opens our eyes, um, whether it be like you just said, when you were asking the questions, I was kind of answering them in my own head. And I I think you're completely right on that, that, you know, once people are given the chance to kind of look within and forced to realize that they've chosen a lot of the change and that it almost becomes a snowball effect also like one decision, one change decision leads to so many more. And so you almost have to kind of rewind to say, you know, if you don't like the way that your life is going or don't like where you're at at this moment, you know, rewind that to say, okay, in some way I did have a part to play in this. Cause I do hear people, people will come to me. I coach people a little bit on the side and people will come to me and say, well, you know, my life's just not been fair. And, you know, I've had, you know, a bad hand or whatever. And I mean, I do realize that there are lots of things that go on in people's lives that are outside of our control. That's what this podcast is about. It's about chaos, you know, and trying to be successful Mm -hmm. in the midst of it. But there is a lot of the chaos that we've started the snowball rolling and we don't realize it. And I think, so I think your questions go play right into that. There's a kid's joke and it goes something like this. Doctor, doctor, it hurts when I do this. And the guy's stabbing himself in the arm with a knife and the doctor's response will stop doing that. And I find as a consultant, as a speaker, as someone who engages with people a a tremendous amount, that at least 95% of the problems that we deal with are self-inflicted. Things aren't working out because we're not doing what we need to do. And sometimes the answer is, well, I I know I could stop, but I, I don't want to stop doing this. What I want it to do is I want it to stop hurting. Well, it doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. And that's true. And so you either need to make the decision that the pain is worth whatever it is you are doing, or you make the decision that you want the pain to stop. So you have to change trajectory on the decisions that you're making. And I think for some people, that's, that's a hard reality uh, to face that, that a lot of their problems is their problems because they've started the ball rolling. <laughs> There's another part of it. Sometimes it's not our problem, but it's our opportunity. Now, I'm not one of those who goes about trying to say that every problem is an opportunity. I don't like messing around with that word. It serves a purpose. Sometimes calling it an opportunity doesn't work. When I was involved in Y2K, I used to highlight the issue, and then someone would respond to me quite often. I mean, I'd heard this hundreds of times. The response I used to get was, someone will fix it by then. And it always puzzled me. Well, who's the someone that's going to do it? And what is going to convince them they should do it that isn't convincing you? And part of leading, I don't know, an autonomous life is being willing to see a problem, even if we're not causing it, and then taking some personal action. When you walk down the street and you see a piece of litter, someone's thrown a Coke can or a beer bottle on the side of the road, we have a couple of choices. We could look at it and say, oh, you know, there are some terrible people in the world. Look what they're doing to to the environment. And then we continue walking on and we place the blame on the person who dropped it. Well, it sort of belongs to them, but there's something else we can do. We can look at it and say, I don't like it being there. Pick it up, put it in a trash can. Do we solve the problem of the person who dropped it? No, we don't. That isn't solved. That's going to continue. But have we solved 
our little problem, the unsightly beer bottle on the side of the road. Yeah, we took care of it this time and the next time and the next time. And we changed the world one beer bottle at a time. That goes right back kind of into the analogy of the snowball. We can do small, great things that in time snowballs and adds up to be lots of big, great things. And, you know, I, I, I tell my children all the time because, you know, I'll say, well, can you do this or can you do that? And their comment is, well, I didn't do that. <laughs> I didn't make that mess, you know, and I'm like, okay, well, I did not make that mess either. There's little ones and then there's older ones that the little ones are learning to clean up after themselves, but the older ones already know how. So I'll say, well, help your sister clean that up. And, you know, and I explain to them that there's lots of things that I choose to do in this world. That's not my job. Like you said, I, I am the person that bends over and picks up the litter. That's not mine because it's the right thing to do. I don't have to do it. You know, I didn't put it there, but it's the right thing to do. And if more people would think like that, we'd have a changed world. And that's my biggest goal, honestly, with my kids is to teach them the little things that seem like nothingness that add up. You know, that's what I hope that they kind of pull from their childhood. So I like that you said that. Yeah, it, it, it doesn't have to be, from my perspective, it doesn't have to be it's the right thing to do so much mm-hmm. as it's, it's the right thing for me to do. In other words, I, I don't care if it makes the world cleaner for the guy across the street. He's looking mm-hmm. at the beer bottle as well. To me, picking it up makes the world that I live in, the, the one that's immediate to me, a little bit better. Gandhi had a saying, think globally, act locally. You can think about the major problems in the world, but what can you as an individual do, no matter how small? And you're doing it for yourself. You're not doing it for anybody else. You're doing it for yourself. To thine own self be true. And you do what you need to do. I like that. You were mentioning Y2K, and I know that you have a podcast related to to Y2K. Can you tell us a little bit about that, how that started, and where people can listen? Yep. The podcast name is Y2K, an autobiography, and it's up on iTunes. You just Google it, podcast, and you'll find it. Y2K, an autobiography. And I got involved in Y2K back in 1978, 1979 timeframe, late 1970s. I was a computer operator for IBM. We were IPLing. We're starting up the computer at the beginning of the day. And when you do that back then, you had to tell it what time it was because there was no internet. So you had to tell it what the date was, what the hour was, what the minute was, what the second was. And when you typed it into the computer, what you were typing in was two digits, not four. Now, the reasons for typing in two rather than four have to do with the incredibly high cost of memory, computer storage back then. Mm -hmm. And we can talk about Hollerith cards, the 80-card, the 80-column punch cards. But the bottom line is it was too expensive to store all four digits, so we stored two. And we told the computer, we programmed the computer, that when you saw a two-digit year, you assume that it's 19, whatever the two-digit year is. So if I'm typing in 77, the computer knows, thinks, that it's 1977. So far, so good. All the calculations you were doing back then, all the work the computer was doing, all the dates were two-digit years, and they were all in 1900. No problem. But when you type in 00, the computer is going to assume 1900, and that's when it hits the fan. If I put money into a bank 
and I put it in in 1999, and I leave it there for a year, the computer has to figure out how much interest do we owe this person. Mm-hmm. So they look at the bank balance. They look at when it was put in. It was put in 99. And they're looking at the current date, which is now zero zero, And they're doing the calculation. How long has it been there? And they go zero zero minus 99. It's been in the bank for minus 99 years old. How much interest is that? Well, you do the calculation. Whatever interest rate for 99 years, oh, and that minus sign. And then you take that money out of their account. The person's account is overdrawn. And now their checks that are coming in are bouncing. Their automatic payments are bouncing. And before you know it, the guy's lost his house and out in the street. Well, I saw that in 1977 and started talking about it. And for the next while, my boss told me, don't worry about it. You're silly. You're worried about a problem. This isn't going to happen for more than two decades. So I believed him. 1990, we have a problem with a computer system where I was working. No one else was fixing this. I fixed that problem. 1993, I wrote my first article because no one was looking at this. We will fix it by then. Someone will fix it by then, except no one was fixing it. 1993, the latter half of 1993, I wrote an article that is now famous, Doomsday 2000. It wasn't my title. And that's what kicked off the awareness. Then for the next, well, until the year 2000, that's all I did was work on Y2K, creating awareness for the problem. Worldwide, we spent $300 billion fixing this problem. People found all types of issues that they fixed. Some issues still occurred. At one point in the mid-1990s, credit cards with an expiry date of 00 or 01 were being rejected by retailers, saying this card is expired. It expired in 1900. Well, ignoring the fact that we don't have credit cards in the 1900, the computer doesn't know that. It's just that you can't use this credit card. And then the story became, because we pretty much fixed it, nothing major happened. The story became, and most of your listeners weren't even around at that time, the story was that nothing happened. This was all a big hoax and a scam. So for the next 20 years, I gave no interviews to the media. I had given more than 2,000 interviews. And then as we were coming up to 2020, I knew that the media would be doing retrospectives, a 20-year look back at the big hoax. Mm -hmm. And I decided to take the narrative back. So Y2K, an autobiography is a story about what really happened, what we did, what we found, what we fixed, what was humorous, what was silly, what was ridiculous, and the thinking behind Y2K. Uh, You don't have to be a computer person to listen to this, but it'll give you a sense of something that is now, well, recent history. And I think things like that, thinking about exactly what's going on behind the scenes that I was unaware. I mean, I was completely unaware. I Let's see, with 2000, I had um, a new baby and was expecting another baby because my oldest ones are 15 months apart. So I was a new mommy. So I was very much just focused on diapers and nursing and all that stuff. <laughs> so I vaguely remember 
people talking about Y2K and I remember the panic before it happened. And I, I remember just like you said, that all of a sudden was like, Oh, okay, no big deal. It's no big deal. And then nothing after that, it just kind of like went away and I never thought anything about it. And I would say most people didn't um, up until I did listen to some of your, your podcast recordings and they were, they were quite eye opening. Um, I think that knowing some of the, things that go on behind the scenes and the thought processes and that there are people that maybe are almost foreseeing the problems, but nothing is being done about the problems. And that can even be said about our current chaos that is going on. You know, there has been people over the years um, saying that we should be prepared for a pandemic, that we should, you know, have plenty of supplies available personally, but also in our healthcare industry for the the issue of having a pandemic hit the area. And I don't think most people take those things to heart until it happens. And then, you know, at that point, it's a, it's a day late. So I, th- I think this is almost like a reminder <laughs> while we're going through this that, yes, Y2K was not a pandemic, but it, all, it was a, a major issue for our infrastructures. It was a major issue for all of our countries. And we're seeing that now with this pandemic. Part of the series is, I mean, one of the things we've already covered is, you know, how did the panic uh, come about? In other words, what led to the hype in Y2K? And I go through that there were really two stories in Y2K. There was the technical issue, which myself and others were focused on. And then there was the the mass media perception of what was going on, which led to the panic. Mm -hmm. It also fed into religious right issues, the coming millennium, the rapture. It fed into survivalist tendencies, which now had really something to look at and point to and say, this could bring about, you know, some serious difficulties. The one I'm currently working on, it's not posted yet, it won't be posted for about two weeks, is going to be, how did we, communicate Y2K. In other words, it was an exercise in crisis communication. And part of the lessons from that are that we have to have simple, concise, consistent messaging that is factual. It's unbiased. It comes from a central source. It's trustworthy. It's promoted by an honest broker. And this will be detailed in episode, I think it's going to be number seven. We have these types of problems all the time. We've known about the possibility of pandemics since the bubonic plague. And then we had 1918, the Spanish flu. We've known about this forever. The notion that no one's ever thought about a pandemic is just fundamentally wrong. You can go to all types of science fiction books, fiction books that talk about a plague. There's one by the hot, the hot zone. We take it into different directions, the Andromeda strain. We talk about how diseases can spread. And what we're seeing is pretty much several of those books that were written decades ago playing out in real life. There's a game that you can get on your PC called Pandemic. Right? Or, or Is it Epidemic or Pandemic? And it's the, the maps are exactly the same. <laughs> you know, shutting down Madagascar has been shut down. They've shut off shipping. They've shut off the plane. All of this is part of the game. Playing that game today is frightening. 
because it's like you're watching the C- a CNN news report. Yeah. It's not a game anymore. Right now, around the world, we are in the, the knee end of the exponential curve. In other words, it's beginning to accelerate. And the sad part about it is most people don't, they don't like math. And graphs and everything are beyond most people. That's not me looking down on anybody. That's just the reality. People don't like math, period. But right now, math is really important. It helps us understand how a curve, an exponential curve works. It also tells you something else. The things you do today will have no impact, no effect at all for two to three weeks. So when we say we're going to be doing social distancing, if you're expecting that to have a payoff immediately, that's not going to happen. It doesn't have an effect for two to three weeks. And that's the sad part is that we've knew about it. We ignored it. There's the joke, right? Every disaster movie begins with people ignoring the experts. Yeah. Well, you don't want to, as a person, you don't want to think that something bad is happening. You don't want to believe that your world is, you know, going to change like we were talking about earlier. Um, I think that's uncomfortable. Change can be very uncomfortable for people, but I think in situations, especially like this, I think change is necessary, obviously. I do agree with what you were saying about the way that the media, the way that people handle this type of information is super important to how people react to it because there, I've, I don't know if it, this happened in Canada, but in the U.S., as soon as news broke that there was going to be, you know, some quarantines coming into effect, the grocery store shelves were literally wiped clean from panic buying, which made this a very big issue for some people that, number one, do not have, you know, extra food on hand at a, on a regular basis people that maybe financially couldn't afford to buy more than a couple of days at a time. And, you know, the elderly that couldn't go out and rush these places the way that some people did. I mean, it, there's a lot of issues that came from this panic buying. Now I was raised to, you know, plan for a rainy day. My mom's parents were depression era and um, she was the baby of the family and she was very much raised to plan for a rainy day. You know, we garden, we can, we, you know, put up for, you know, if, you know, that year's crop is bad. It was just, it's just the way that my mindset has always been. That's the way that I was raised. And so it's not been a big change personally for me because we're still doing the same things that we always do. But I think it's very foreign to some people that have not been brought up that way. And with my age, I'm the minority on the way that I think like that, but it was because the way that I was raised. And um, I know that that's been something that I've been getting a lot of questions on. There's a lot of people my age that never learned how to can foods. And now it's looking like the very real possibility that that needs to be something that we all start to do again is have a garden learned to can. My grandpa passed away a few years back, but before he passed, one of the things he told me is he said, we're going to hit another depression. It's going to happen. And he said, this time it's going to be worse because nobody knows how to do anything. And it didn't really strike me then, but when this stuff started to happen, that quote that he said kind of came to my head because this could be, you know, the usher into the next depression era. And he's right. A lot of people do not 
know how to do just the basic things to survive anymore. Yeah, it's unfortunate. Up in Canada, we've not had the panic buying as much. First couple of days, we were out of milk and bread in a lot of stores, but that lasted a day or two. Now, the one thing that's consistently out of stock is flour, because people are starting to bake again. But everything else is there. I mean, I went out to the grocery store yesterday, pick up some staples. Uh, we picked up some milk and stuff. They put a limit on how many bags of milk you can take. Mm-hmm. And there's no panicking. We're not anymore. There was a little bit, but we're not doing that so much right now. We're, we're pretty much in lockdown. Our government has stepped in fairly early, still not early enough, quite frankly, yeah. but they're, they're doing a lot of the right things now. Politicians that I wasn't particularly fond of are stepping up to the plate and they're doing what they need to do. I have a, a little bit more respect for them now. In Canada, too, I mean, we're in the far north. We suffer from snow. Yeah. You know, we get that a fair bit. So a typical Canadian household will have two to three weeks of food. Not stockpiled. It's just that the cupboard will have, you know, enough there to last you two to three weeks. Why? Well, we get ice storms. I mean, we get an ice storm in Toronto. We had, we've had a couple in my stay here, two or three, and you could be locked in your house for a week. T- totally. I mean, you can't go out Yeah, because there's a, you know, an inch or two of ice on everything. You can't drive. You can't walk. Trees are falling down on your head. So you stay inside where it's safe. So we haven't had the panic buying here, but that is normal human behavior. Unfortunately, I don't understand the fascination with toilet paper. I do no, not get that. that. That's been the big joke. There's the, you can find plenty of jokes on the toilet paper, and I think that is just a U.S. thing. I'm not sure. <laughs> it's not <laughs> Canadian. We have no shortage of that. Maybe I should start bootlegging it down uh, to the States. I'm telling you, it's been funny. You have to laugh at some of these things because some of it, I mean, it is, it's a scary time. It's a sad time in a lot of ways, but my philosophy, and I joke around and say it's because I was emotionally stunted, but I tend to try to humorize things sometimes. And that's just always been my coping mechanism. So, you know, instead I could panic, I could freak out, I could worry, but that does no good. Instead, I try to find the silver linings of the positivity. And then I try to find something to laugh about because, you know, that saying laughter is the best medicine. I am a believer in that because, you know, freaking out and panicking and worrying that's not productive. Trying to find the silver linings. Like you just said, you said that flour is something that's becoming a little more scarce. I see that as a positive thing because I think people are starting to remember some of the things they used to do. You know, remember to slow down, remember to pause, you know, remember to kind of step back into their roots and to do some of the things that we haven't had time for because we're such a busy society now. And as terrible as all of this is, I think that is the silver lining that I see from this is that we're being forced to pause just even for a moment. We're doing a fair bit of that. I mean, nearly everyone in my family and immediate family and extended family is now out of work. Uh, Nearly everyone. One of my relatives owned a restaurant. They had 55 staff members. They shut down one day before it became mandatory to shut down restaurants. Mm -hmm. So 55 people out of work, plus everybody in my family. Uh, My two sons have, I have a grandson and a granddaughter now, one with each of my sons. And they're, to them, it's a holiday in a way. Yeah, they don't have money coming in, but they have savings because they plan for a rainy day. 
-hmm. They're not hurting. If it continues for a year, yeah, they'll start hurting. But they have the wherewithal. They've put it aside. My son's a bartender. He won't be working for any, you know, for the foreseeable future. My other son's a teacher. They were told they were going to be out, let out, you know, for an extra two weeks over the March break. My take right from the beginning is he won't be going back till September. They're not going to open up the schools again. They can't. No. No. Because the rate of infection is continuing to accelerate. We can't open up again until the rate of infection tapers off and starts declining. And even when it starts declining, it has to go down to single digits yep. for a country for and a week before you can say, okay, it's safe to go out. In my family, I have someone who's just had a heart transplant. They're immune compromised. I have another individual who's just come through leukemia treatment where he had a stem cell uh, transplant. He made it through the 100 days and was just about ready to start visiting and seeing us again because we haven't seen him for 90 days, 100 mm -hmm. days. And this came along, which means he's back in hard quarantine now until time. this is over. Because if he gets this thing, he's dead. Mm -hmm. I'm 65. If I get it, chances are I'm dead. And this notion of, you know, we have to get back to work. Um, you go first. Exactly. Now, I'm not going. Well, and I think people are concerned economically. Yes, we all should be saving. We all should have saved, like you said, for a rainy day. But in the reality, um, and I don't know what the the issue is with that in the in Canada, but in the U.S., a lot of people live paycheck to paycheck. Well, I know. A lot of people, and it's sad. And actually, and called for, the U.S. has plenty of jobs and plenty of money, but people are not great at planning. That or that seems to be my take on it. I could be wrong, but um, from my experience and people that I've you know run into and spoke with, it seems to be that they just they don't understand the concept of of planning. Well, up in Canada, we have a, a slightly different, we have a very different situation. First off, unemployment insurance will kick in immediately. Mm -hmm. We have paid sick days. That's just part of our society. We have a Medicare system that, you know, medical system that takes care of us. I had open heart surgery about nine years ago. And best doctor in the world, one of the best doctors in the world, Tyrone David. I was in the hospital for a month while they checked me out. They put me through every conceivable test to make sure that they knew what they were doing because the chances were I had a chest infection. Mm -hmm. And my bill at the end was $17. And it was $17 because I had decided to bring a TV into the room for a day. I shouldn't have done that. Otherwise, I'd have walked out with zero bill. The most mm -hmm. expensive thing in my stay was parking when my wife came to visit me. Parking wasn't free. But everything else was free. And that's, yeah, I, I don't think I've ever paid $17 for anything medically related in my life. I'm in Ohio. Even taking, my daughter um, had to go get, she had an earring stuck in her ear. That's a whole nother story <laughs> for a whole nother day. But she, <laughs> I had to take her down to the, I could not get it out. And I'm pretty good about home, you know, triage on certain things with all these children, but I could not get it out of her ear. Took her down to the local emergency room for them to get it out. And that bill was almost $3,000. Yeah. And when I said free, I mean, obviously it's not free. Yeah, yeah. You know, There yeah. ain't no such thing as a free lunch. Exactly. It's not free. Of course it's not. We pay taxes. We pay a lot of taxes. But here's the thing. We, we get value for the taxes we pay. 
and we take care of each other. The shared expenses. It is a shared expense, and it's good for society in the following way. Because we have paid sick leave, when someone is sick here, they take a day off. They don't go in and spread the disease. Mm -hmm. Because they're sick and because the health care is taken care of, they go see a doctor early to take care of the issue. It doesn't get worse. We don't go to work when we're ill. Some people still have that mindset, you know, you have to go in all the time. But I was never, even when I was working for someone else as a manager, I used to tell people, don't come in here if you're sick. First, you need to get better and you'll do that better at home. And secondly, I don't want you to infect the rest of my team. Go home, get better, come back. And if you can do something at home, great, do it. But that's your choice. I'm not going to tell you you have to do it. If the project is late, it's late. Mm -hmm. Why? Because I was a bad manager and I didn't factor that into my planning. It's not your fault. It's not your responsibility to make sure that I do my project planning properly. It's the responsibility of management to do that. I agree with that. And I think there's a lot of people that do go to work sick and that is because they do not have sick pay. Uh, My husband, he can miss work if he needs to, but he doesn't get paid for the day if he does miss. And I think that that actually is a tragedy in some ways to society, because like you said, even if it's a minor cold, a lot of people may go thinking, okay, well, it's just a cold, but a minor cold to a healthy person would be very dangerous to your family member that just had the stem cell put in. So, I mean, that's the things that we don't think about. For him, we did social distancing for him since November last year. Never saw the guy again. We would phone him from time to time. We'd do FaceTime and all the rest. But we we didn't meet him. And if we had a cold, give you an example. If we weren't feeling well, we wouldn't go see my son because his wife would be going to see the in-law. Mm-hmm. And we could pass it along. And we do that all the time. If we're not feeling well, we don't go to family gatherings. Do we want to go? Of course we do. We had a family gathering scheduled just for last weekend. And my wife's Italian. Mm-hmm. So a small family gathering, this is just every couple of months just to get together, is 16 or 20 families. We canceled it because yeah. we had too many people in the family who would be seriously affected if we passed anything along. And since they're Italian, there's hugging and there's kissing and oh, there's yeah. passing of food and everything else. So we don't do that. So instead we got on Zoom. <laughs> we had 16 families on Zoom at the same time, all talking, no one listening. Just like a normal weekend. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Well, and it's great that we can do that with technology now. I had a very large family, um, and we used to get together every Sunday. Since my grandma passed, we haven't done that, sadly. But, yeah, I I, I understand the loud, you know, families that do not listen and talk a lot. I was raised in that family. (laughs) But, yeah, I think our family is kind of the oddballs. I don't send my kids to school if they're even a little bit ill. And I've had to have several discussions with the school system because of that, because I'll, I'll keep them home. And it doesn't make sense to me for me to number one, send them if they can infect somebody else. And another thing you don't think about is your immune system's also down to be able to catch lots of other things when you're ill, even if you're practicing washing your hands and all of that. And I think the rules on that type of thing needs to be more loose. They do allow missing of three days within a quarter. And then anything above that, you have to have a doctor's note for, but not everything needs doctor's care. And half the time taken to the doctor, number one, is expensive if it's just something minor. And number two, they can pick up something else while in the waiting room to have the doctor tell me, well, just drink fluids and 
have them get some rest. This isn't my first rodeo. I've had lots of children. I've been to the doctor with them for every hiccup and sneeze. And I know the protocol now. The doctor knows I know the protocol now. And I think that it's unfortunate that a lot of the school systems here, that that is how they operate. It's sad. And the doctors have a real problem with this doctor's note thing. And the problem is very, very simple. It takes an awful lot of time, not for one note, but if they have to do a hundred notes during flu season or stuff, that's a hundred appointments they have to make. And it's burdensome. It it really is an issue. And while they charge you for it, and yes, you said it costs money, the administrative costs for charging, it drives up the cost. It just gets silly. So I believe when I, even when I had when I was a manager, I had six people working for me. Uh, we never asked for doctor's notes. Was if you're ill, you're ill, stay home. We'll take it off your sick days. Mm-hmm. If you exceed your sick days, and that was possible, then we'd make allowances depending upon what's going on. I mean, if it's obvious that you're really sick, we'd turn a blind eye. Uh, we wouldn't take care of that. Uh, we wouldn't worry about it. If they were really pushing it and they needed extra time and we've turned an eye you know to the side too many times then okay they eat into their holiday time but we try to avoid that a tremendous amount as well because we need our breaks we need holiday time just to recharge i think here in the u.s there's too much pressure put on and again i've I've, i don't know enough about canada to say how it is or isn't there i I believe in the educational system i think that children need to be educated but there's so much busy work that goes into a day and i know that firsthand they're doing they're doing homeschool right now because we're all on quarantine and just some of the stuff that they have to do is just seems so burdensome i've got one child that is on the spectrum he's autistic and he has a really hard time doing school from home anyway they tend to compartmentalize things and school goes with school and home goes with home so he's really having a hard time with it so i actually have reached out to his teacher just to say how much of this is mandatory for him to do because it is so hard for him you can see it it's physically hard on him mentally Mm -hmm. hard on him to try to make himself do it here and it just seems like so much of it is just just busy 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 work and there's not enough focus put on creativity i think it's been very i don't know the word that i want to use but it's almost overly structured i mean i like structure Autistic children definitely need structure, but there is such a thing, in my opinion, as overly structured, too much planning, too many things in a day. And I think, again, with this pandemic and this quarantine, we're all being forced to take a break, take a pause, take a breath. And I'm looking at just the unnecessary things that we all do in a day and saying, why are we doing all these unnecessary things? (laughs) Well, there's another aspect to the the quarantine that we're going through, the lockdowns and all the rest is that, you know, there's a lot of people saying, well, you know, you, you should take that time and put it to something useful. You know what? Maybe. I mean, if that's what you want to do, great. But if anybody's feeling obligated to, you know, to, well, I must learn a new skill because I'm at home and this is what I should do, then that's that's weird thinking just take it as an opportunity to do what you want or to do nothing yeah to read you know i have a pile i don't know about you but i have about six thousand books in my library and there's at least three or four hundred that are on my to be read file i'm at home a lot i could say well now's the time to hit that pile but that's not what a to be read file is for it's for when i want to read that book it's there Right now, I don't want to read. I got too much else in my mind. Yeah, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to binge watch something that I haven't seen, you know, Westworld or something, and I'm enjoying it. It's a bit of a break. My kids are taking it the same way. For both of them, 
It's an opportunity to spend some really good quality time with their kids. I mean, they're having a blast. Now, both kids are very, very young. One is two and a half. The other is just going on a year. But they're spending like every waking moment with the kids now and doing all types of things with them and having great time. Uh, none of the kids have gone batty yet. And they're taking it as sort of a vacation at home. I think uh, it depends on the day here. There's been some days where it's uh, been quite chaotic. <laughs> I have I have teenagers and young kids, and it's the dynamic between the two is cumbersome some days. I wouldn't change it for the world, but right. the teenagers are mad at the world. I actually have one that was a senior this year, and Ouch. his world, of course, is turned upside down. It's kind of sad, you know, that you work for something for 12 years and you don't get to see it all the way through. But that's the world that we live in. I mean, sometimes those things just happen. And that's what I've tried to, you know, talk to him about. And I told him, I said, it's okay to be upset. It's okay to be mad. That's one of the things that I strongly believe in is, you know, you have your feelings. It's fine to have your feelings. You know, don't fall into your feelings, but it's okay to have your moment, you know, be upset, be mad. The teenagers are stir crazy staying here. You know, they're used to being with their friends and, right. you know, doing all the teenage things. And the younger kids are fine. It's a long weekend in them so far. It's been um, interesting. It's very, very loud <laughs> with all of them. Definitely not a down moment. <laughs> there are going to be all types of stories. I mean, you mentioned lives being turned out topsy-turvy. A young second cousin of mine was over in Canada from Ireland, and he had taken a summer job. He'd been here about a year, more than a summer job. He was on a work visa, and then he finally landed a job. He's a U.S. citizen as well. He landed a job in Boston. He was going to be heading down to Boston in about two weeks. Well, uh, last week, a couple of conversations with his parents, looking at what was happening here, looking at what was happening into the States, and practically overnight – they decided, nope, he's going back to Ireland. Yeah. So he got out of his lease, packed his bags. I met him at the airport to see him off. That happened over a two-day period. And his life was just going to begin. He had a job, a good job lined up in Boston. And he won't be going to Boston. Now he's back to Ireland, 14-day quarantine. And now his life is on hold again, big time. And he's not the only one. There will be millions of stories like this. I'm South African, like I mentioned, and there are a bunch of South Africans trying to get out of South Africa and emigrate to Canada. Well, a couple of them have just landed. They land every day. Mm -hmm. But I know a couple of them because I pick them up at the airport, take them to where they need to go the first day. Now, some of these people came over here. They don't have jobs yet. So they land two or three weeks before this all happens. Now, their hope was to get a job and start a new life here. They came over with suitcase. They're in dire straits. Oh, I'd say. You're brand new to a country. You, you have no relatives here. You have no support structure. You're, you're hoping for a job to land with two or three, in two or three months because you have the money to make that happen. Uh, you can survive for the two or three months, but you need the job. And now everybody's unemployed. Mm -hmm. What they're going to do, I have no idea. There are other people planning to come, and now they're not going to be let in. I mean, this is going to upheave, turn lives all over the world upside down. Not to mention the deaths. I believe, we're not 100% sure, we just lost someone in Florida. A friend of the family passed That's away. Insane. We don't have the final details, but it's likely that it was the virus. This is going to affect everybody. And so, we're just in the beginnings. 
man, we're just in the beginning. And, and the only way we're going to do this is by pulling together, by looking out for each other, by checking up on the neighbor down the street. We have a couple of elderly people. I'm 65. We have elderly people. <laughs> we have a couple of older people that we're phoning up on a regular basis. Do you have everything you need? We'll go do shopping for you. We'll drop you off at your door. And that's the only way we're going to get through this. We have to look out for each other. Because we're the adults in the room and it's up to us. Someone isn't going to fix this for us in the near future. We have to fix it ourselves. And we do that by taking care of ourselves. Well, and that plays right back into what we were discussing about Y2K and about the fact that the someone, this unnamed person that doesn't exist unless you become that person. We all need to become that person on our own levels. And maybe it's on a minor level of, like you said, calling and checking on a neighbor, bringing in groceries. Maybe your calling is to stay home, just stay home, not to spread Mm -hmm. it anymore. Maybe your calling is, you know, to help if you're a teacher or something, maybe to help these kids that are struggling with some of their homework or whatever it may be. I think the someone it starts, it starts with us and, Think about just one minor little thing that you can do to help. And sometimes the help is just nothing. Just stay home. I was having that discussion with somebody yesterday because they're like, well, I just feel like I want to help. I just want to do something. And I'm like, well, if you can't think of anything to do, just stay home. That is helping. (laughs) Stay home. You know, don't spread it. Don't go out and help spread this. I said, you know, everybody keeps saying flatten the curve, flatten the curve. And it's become something our governor, especially in Ohio, it's he's every day at 2 p.m., you know, he comes online and gives, you know, the, the day's announcements on the numbers in Ohio and all that. And flatten the curve is something that he says every single day. And I think it's people are not paying attention to that. And I'm not one to panic. We are all fairly healthy. I feel that even if we got it, we would have a very good chance on just having the flu and feel, feeling terrible. But that's not the reality for many, many people. That's what we need to think about. We need to think about those that would not fare so well, because that's what I hear all the time. Well, it's just a flu. And this happens no, with any new flu. flu. You know, this, this happens with any new flu. Yeah. So th- th- that's what's going around, you know. I know. And that is, you know, that's the issue is that mentality of, well, I'll be okay. Well, maybe, yes, you know, you're healthy and maybe you will be fine. There's lots of people that have overcome this that are healthy. It's not that it can't happen, but Mm -hmm. I'm not willing to take that risk with my family and I'm not willing to risk infecting somebody else. That's not something I would be okay with. That's how I feel about it. There's an old Pogo cartoon strip and there's one of the great panels where he's talking about the environment and everything else. And the line is, we have met the enemy and he is us. Now you could do a spin on that. We have met the heroes and they were us. We're going to be the heroes of our own story. We're going to be heroes for our own community. And unless we do that, if we're waiting around for the white knight to come charging in, that isn't going to happen. It's you me, person down the street. And that's how we get through this. I agree. And I have seen some great things. um, I'm on Facebook and I don't know how you feel about social media. Some people love it. Some people hate it, but I am on Facebook and I've seen so many people volunteering business services for free. You know, I can help you set up, you know, your online stuff for free or, you know, I, I have, you know, extra this, if you would need some, I can leave it on your porch or just volunteering to do these things. And again, I think if we pause long enough and we're looking for the silver linings in this, there's a lot of community action going on right now of 
everybody caring about each other and trying to be helpful. The news is full of all the people panic buying toilet paper, which is, you know, funny in some ways and sad in some other ways. But if you look really closely, there is that silver lining of of the people, the people that are trying to be the change. And I think that's hopeful in a lot of ways. It is. I mean, there was a story, I wish I could remember the name of the hotel. I think it was the Doolan Hotel. I'm not certain of that. Uh, There was a hotel in Ireland that basically put out a notice saying, if you know anybody in our area who's at home, elderly, and they need help, then phone in food orders on a daily basis, and we will deliver the food to you, no charge for the delivery, no charge for the food, for the duration. And it's stories like that that highlight how important community is and that we are all part of that community. There isn't anybody else. It is just us, and we have to work as a community. That way we survive. That way we make it through. And that way we can turn it into a memory that isn't going to be all pain and anguish, that there will be some really, really good stories coming out of this and friendships that will arise out of this. And renewed interests, you know, renewed know-how. Or or maybe it's just the renewed ability just to stop for a while and and do nothing. I mean, I think that's a skill anymore. I, I have a hard time with that. That's been my biggest thing. I'm so used to going 90 miles an hour that, you know, staying here, I'm stir crazy <laughs> a little bit, you know. And I think that's actually sad in some ways that that's our norm. And I don't even know how it happened. It's like accidentally happened, you yeah, know. And, well, introverts have a head up on you know. <laughs> There, we're far ahead of everybody else on this one. You know, to be honest, uh, being at home, that's normal for me. Yeah. <laughs> I don't go out a tremendous amount. I go out enough, but I don't go out a tremendous amount. Look to the introverts. That's and, what my uh, daughter said. I have one of the introverts. <laughs> all the introverts need to be contacting the extroverts to see if they're doing okay. Yeah, support system. Yeah. My, my 19 year old, she's introverted. And, um, that's what she was joking about. She said, I've got this. It's no problem. She said, I go to work and come home and that's pretty much all I do. She said, now I just don't have to go to work. <laughs> so I was like, well, there's some silver linings. You know, you have to, again, kind of smile and laugh. And I want to talk about before we kind of end this, I want to talk about, we did mention your Y2K podcast and where to find that. You also have a webinar. I would like you to kind of mention that and just a little snippet about that for people that would be interested in listening to that. We have been doing a webinar series now for more than a decade. Now, when I say we, it's myself and a fellow by the name of Mark Malali. And if you go to www.vimeo.com slash technobility, T-E-C-H-N-O-B-I-L-I-T-Y, just vimeo.com slash technobility, you will find more than 100 one-hour presentations that you are free to to use. I mean, if you're stuck inside, you want to do something different, head there. Now, what types of things do we cover? Well, everything related to management, people skills, creativity, problem solving, time management, how to put a presentation together, uh, what is trust all about? How do, you, how do you create trust? How do you make decisions? We've been doing that, like I said, for more than 10 years. We have more than 100 one-hour presentations up there. And the way we do this is that every month we do one of these. We have another one starting at noon today. <laughs> 
but that'll be late when you hear this. We do it once a month. Sometimes we have guests. Sometimes it's Mark. Sometimes it's me. And you get on a mailing list. We'll send you out a notice every time it's out there. Uh, if you want to contact me, it's pdarger, P-D-E-J-A-G-E-R, at technobility, T-E-C-H-N-O-B-I-L-I-T-Y, Com. Asked to be put on the mailing list, and then we'll let you know every month what we're going to be doing. We've had as many as 500 people uh, live listening to the presentation. We then take the recording and we put it into the Vimeo archive. And you're free to do it. Why do we do it? Yeah, it's marketing. But we don't do sales, sales pitches. We don't do any of that. We just give you the same type of presentations that we would do as a keynote for a large conference. We use PowerPoint, but it's unlike most of the PowerPoints you've ever seen. Uh, we may have some bullet points, but it's not that type of PowerPoint. It's images, it's graphics, it's single word prompts, and it's, it's meant to be eye candy to keep your attention. You're welcome to come on live. You're welcome just to go to the Vimeo site and browse through it, see what you like, leave a comment, spread the word. That's how this stuff works. I love that. And I actually will be sharing that. I, I was able to listen to a couple of them last night. And a lot of listeners that I have know that I have a consulting company on the side as well as co-owner of a marketing company. And with your permission, I would love to share that out on our stuff because I think a lot of our clients that we have would get a lot of information from you all, um, especially while a lot of them are, like you said, sitting at home and as entrepreneurs and business owners do, we're always trying to figure out how to quote unquote, not waste our time. So a lot of times watching something that will teach us something about ourselves or our business or whatever is something that is very beneficial. One of the topics that we have there is called lost or losing your job. It's mm. about the emotions that you go through when you are laid off or whatever. Perfect for these times, slightly different situation. Uh, typically that would be for a corporate layoff or something. This is a different situation, so it won't be 100% applicable. And I'll make an offer to you. I mean, if you have a topic that you are focused on in your consulting and you'd like to get on board as a guest, by all means, uh, you know, join us for a month and be introduced to our uh, audience, which may be a different audience than the one you're currently listening to. Sorry, the one that you're currently speaking with. But this is meant to be a sharing. Yes, it's marketing. There's no doubt about that. It gets our name out there. But it really is, here's some really good, interesting information. And if I do say so myself, Mark and I are pretty good at this. We've been doing it for, like I said, 10 years. Uh, putting a presentation together, the type that we do, takes about 40 hours for a one-hour presentation. Uh, a lot of thought goes into what we produce. And we're getting good at it. A new presentation every week, uh, every month, we are certifiable. We should be put in a room and a padded cell <laughs> because the amount of work that goes into these things is uh, extraordinary, extraordinarily difficult, a large amount, concentrated. It's, it's just difficult, but we do it and we do it every month. And I think it's very much needed that those resources um, to be able to educate someone in a lot of things that like you all are doing, I think is very important to do. And the fact that you all are doing that 
at no charge. It, it is slightly certifiable, but it's, it's great too. We do the same thing. You know, I have people say all the time, you could charge for that. I'm like, yeah, I could charge for that, but I don't need to charge for that. I charge for the things that I need to charge for and I don't for the other things. And I, I have that balance for a reason because yes, my businesses that I own, their businesses that so they need to make money. So there are things that I do need to charge for, but I don't charge for everything for, for that reason, because I, I do the things that I do because I enjoy helping people. I enjoy giving back. You know, I, I enjoy sitting down with a business owner and helping them find the, the typos in their business as a way that I explain consulting. You're a consultant. So, you know, that may make mm-hmm. sense to you. I, you know, explain that people, and I've said this a thousand times, I'd say my listeners are probably tired of hearing it, but I think it's a great analogy myself that you type out a paper or, you know, an article and, you know, you read it and you're like, yeah, okay, that's exactly what I wanted to say. This is great. And then you send it to an editor or have your friend look over and they're like, okay, well, there's a typo here, a typo here. There's a run on sentence. Okay. This doesn't make sense. And you get it back. You're like, oh, okay. Cause you didn't see it the first times that you read it through because you knew what you meant to say. You knew what it was supposed to say. You knew what it was supposed to look like because it was yours. You were so close to it. And I think as business owners, and I'm the same way, I've hired in coaches. I've hired in consultants to help me, even though I consult and I coach. And people are always like, why do you do that? And then that's why I explain it like that. I'm like, we do not see our own typos. You know, we're so close to it. We know what it's supposed to be. We know what it's supposed to say, how, and we don't see the typos that we have. And it can end up costing us a lot of money. It can damage our business. It can do a lot of things. And I'm, I'm a big advocate for coaching. I'm a big advocate for consulting. And that's why. It's a simple concept. Other eyes catch surprises. Yeah. I mean, they, they always do. I mean, it's you, like you said, you're so close to your own words or your own work that you don't see the flaws. You need to hand it to someone else, no matter how sure you are about it. And they will inevitably find a mistake, although it can get out of hand. Oh, if you, I did this as an exercise. <laughs> I had an article and I gave it to an editor and said, can you make some changes? And they did. And I took their changes and I handed that article to another editor and they found edit they found changes. And then if I, and I did it about 10 times, every editor found problems. <laughs> every editor, their yeah, role well, is and to I edit. think a lot of that goes to personal taste. <laughs> well, of course it does. Of course it does. Yep. But every editor is going to make sense. It's like going to a barber and saying, do I need a haircut? And the Barbara's answer had better be, yes, you do. Otherwise, they're out of work. But you're absolutely <laughs> right. You have exactly. to show your work to other people. Our egos are somewhat fragile sometimes, but we really do have to share our work so they can be seen. Uh, one of the main themes in the archive I mentioned earlier is change management, how to manage change. I must have at least a dozen, art- a dozen presentations on that topic alone. Uh, the seven questions of change, a methodology for bringing change about, how to do it yourself, what are the change process models. Uh, that is my primary focus, is how people embrace change, how we push back, how we communicate it, and how to do it better so that it's easier. You'll notice I emphasize that word because change is never easy, but we can make it easier than we we tend to do. Oh, I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. Well, I have enjoyed talking to you. Um, And like I told you in our pre-interview, you have a wonderful voice, so that makes it much more pleasant to talk with you. And I will be sharing your webinar. It's been a pleasure, Maria. I enjoyed this. 
If you ever want to have me back again to yeah. talk about something other yes, specifically, then let's do that. We mentioned politically correctness at one point as, as part of speaking and even consulting. We could do that in a future yes. session. I'd say that there's several things that we can talk about. I've enjoyed this. Some Good. guests are more fun than others, and that's nothing against my other guests, but some are more fun than others. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yes, I will, I will definitely have you back. Thank, Thank you, you so much. much. You're welcome. Have a great day, folks. Be good. Be safe. Wash your filthy hands. Yes, definitely. They exclamated. LA Times, I stay on page six. I'm even your favorite's favorite. <laughs> you better, better tell them who's the boss, me. 